Well, brothers and sisters, uh, good morning. I just want to reiterate how thankful I am to be with you this morning to share a portion of God's word with you. And on that note, I would ask you to open your Bibles to uh, the Old Testament uh, book of the Minor Prophets of Zacharias. Zacharias, just before the uh, New Testament, before Malachi, and after Habakkuk and Zephaniah. Zechariah, the words of our text this morning will be from chapter 3 of the prophet Zechariah, verses 1 to 10. Zechariah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Hear now the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This is God's word, and may God bless the meditation of God's word this morning. I was reading this uh, past week a blog uh, article by Paul McCauley describing what is our condition before God. He imagines it as a drama set in a courtroom, like in a justice setting, where the writer of this drama is not just Shakespeare, but is God himself. And we are not mere spectators, but we are actually active participants in the event. You are involved as the person under judgment. Apparently, you have broken the law. And this is not the law of any particular nation or land. No, this is a higher law from God. And according to that standard, none of us, none of us can plead innocent. All of us are guilty before that standard. And we are under accusation. The accusing team 
which is both ourself, but also the enemy of our soul, Satan. And many try to push God off his throne, trying to find a kind of a way to pass the test and plead innocent. But friends, the reality is that the judge requires 100% obedience. And none of us has been able or will be able to fit that standard. You can't bribe the judge. You can't hope for some excuse. And so if this is our condition in this drama, we will be done. Were it not for another role that the judge undertakes. And that is the role that we want to see in the words of our text. That is the focus that we want to see this morning in the, this chapter 3 of Zechariah, which I could describe to you as a dilemma. A dilemma of the high priest Joshua, and a dilemma of all of us, by extension. We want to see two things here. The first thing we will see is the problem of the sin of the high priest. And by extension, the problem of all of our sins. And we will see also the solution which is brought about by a better high priest. That is Jesus Christ. But before we dive into this text, looking at this problem and the solution, let's uh, talk about Zechariah. Zechariah is one of the minor prophets, which is uh, actually one of the last Old Testament books written before the New Testament. Uh, Zechariah was uh, uh, writing this prophecy after the exile, after uh, all the other prophets had prophesied about the destruction of the temple, and now Israel has come back, Judah has come back to Jerusalem, and this is uh, actually a prophecy that is intended to bring restoration after that judgment. And uh, Cyrus, a pagan king, had even authorized uh, the Jews to come back and build the temple, the presence of God, what symbolized the presence of God among his people. And so Zechariah himself actually was a priest, very acquainted of the uh, Old Testament priesthood. And, and they had seen the destruction of Jerusalem. Now for 70 years, they had been a foreign land and they have come back, as you know your Old Testament history. This morning, for example, I was reading Nehemiah. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are now coming back to Jerusalem. They are facing, however, opposition. As they're trying to build the walls of Jerusalem, as they're trying to build the temple, there had been hindrance, political people in the area who did not want this to happen. Uh, pagan people who had lived in that area for all the 70 years of exile did not want the, the, the building of the temple. So they had stopped the works for the temple. And now Zechariah, Haggai, those minor prophets, encouraged the people to actually resume the building of the temple. And while Ezra and Nehemiah focus on the external opposition, Zechariah is focusing here on the internal and spiritual opposition to this work, which we are introducing here in chapter 3 with a demonic hindrance, the devil seems to be busy and frustrated by something that is happening. And that something is worship. 
The devil wants to stop and hinder the worship of God in the temple. And this great main character is Joshua, who is the high priest. Now, if you know your Old Testament history, a high priest was the first appointed. And in this case, Joshua is the first appointed priest after 70 years that the priesthood had been seized. There was no king in Israel. There was no more priesthood. There was no more temple. The high priest was to be the chief of priests. And therefore, he needed to have a special degree of holiness that was expected of him to enter into the temple. You might have all all these, uh, uh, maybe picture in your uh, study Bible where there was this special section of the temple, the Holy of Holies, and a special holiness was required of the high priest to enter into the presence of God. He was in, to be charged over the temple worship and he needed to be ceremonially clean in order to enter the presence of God. And now for us to come to chapter 3, uh, we have a big problem, it seems. There is a troubling image in this vision, which is part of uh, uh, several visions that Zechariah receives, because the, the, the high priest is defiled. And defilement needed to be avoided at all costs. And not only that, but the high priest's sin, moral and ceremonial defilement, had an impact on the whole people of God. And so by extension, the entire nation of Israel now is under the charge of guilt. Yes, they had been restored to Jerusalem. Yes, they had paid for the punishment of the sin, but now they're back, but the sin still remains. And we need to find a solution to these problems. But the solution is not on Joshua. The solution is on Yeshua. Yeshua who is the, literally the word Joshua means Jehovah is salvation. The Lord saves. This little book of Zechariah is only second to Isaiah for the number of prophecies that the the New Testament will quote Referring to Jesus Christ. Chapter 9 to 14 in particular. But even here in chapter 3. We are in the midst of a great manifestation. A great prophecy about a coming better high priest. Who will cleanse the priesthood. Because of the love of God for his people. That God will return to Zion. And he will solve once and for all the problem of the sin of Israel. Why and how? Through a coming Messiah. The coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, makes it possible for unworthy sinners to be forgiven and granted a new life of service in God's presence. That is what the coming Messiah does. And so let us now look to the words of our text. And we see, first of all, the problem of the high priest's sin, Joshua. And by extension, the problem of our sin as we approach a holy God. What do we see, first of all? That sin brings condemnation. And you see that in verse 1 and verse 3. Verse 1 starts with this uh, figure who had uh, a measuring line. We are told in verse 13 of chapter 2 that he had showed the prophet Joshua several visions. And now there is this vision of Joshua, the high priest, who is standing He's standing. That word in the Old Testament has a meaning. 
is loaded with uh, judicial character as once again the, the image of a courtroom. He is standing on trial. So picture an uh, advocate, lawyers in a tribunal, in a court case with a judge, defense and accused. And what we have here, we have this mysterious figure, the angel of the Lord, which is a central figure to this passage. He appears four times. The angel of Yahweh. He seems to have a ministry of intercession with God on behalf of man. And he has been pointed out many times in the Old Testament. Sometimes there is this mysterious angel of the Lord that appears. And he seems to have this role. And some scholars all the way to the Reformation have seen this as a possible appearance of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Who intervenes. And, and he mediates between God and man. But side by side with this angel of the Lord, there's somebody else. There's another character. Have you seen that in the verse 1? It's Satan, who is also standing at the right hand of Joshua. Simultaneously, angel of the Lord, Satan. You might be familiar with uh, some of the cartoons that you watch where sometimes there's a cartoon character where there's a moment of decision and there's a, a white angel that shows up on his, sh his shoulder and there's a red devil that shows up on the other shoulder. And the character is kind of in between the two and he has to make a decision. And this is possibly how Joshua feels right now between two fires. But remember, one of them is greater than the other. However, this figure of Satan is indeed threatening here. He's described for us many times as the accuser, the adversary, uh, and another angel. But he is an antagonistic. He's opposing. Notice he's opposing and hindering. He wants to hinder the worship of God that takes place in the temple where Joshua is standing before the Holy of Holies. He doesn't like it. He wants to stop it. There's almost a play on word here because the accuser He's standing there to accuse Joshua. He's standing there to prove to God that Joshua is unworthy to be a priest, to stand before God. And why is that? Verse 3 of our text. Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with what? Filthy garments. Dirty clothes. Imagine here, clothes befouled with excrement. This is a very nasty picture. Something that sometimes this word refers to vomit. The most disgusting thing that you can think. And the problem is that the high priest, as we said, needed to be morally and ceremonially clean. And so this is inexcusable for him to be in, that, in such condition. He's unfit to enter the Holy of Holies. Leviticus chapter 22 verse 3 says clearly, the high priest shall be clean when he comes into the Holy of Holies. But Satan comes and accuses. And sin brings accusation to us, does it? But secondly, sin threatens to disqualify us from the service of God. From accessing to the presence of God. It brings separation between us and God. Verse 6 of our text. 
the, the, the angel of the Lord in, intervenes and admonished Joshua of something. He gives us a warning. And verse 7 continues, Thus says the Lord. Which means this is a, a solemn requirement. It says, If you walk in my ways and keep my commandment, then you can stay here in my presence. And you can fulfill the priestly obligation that you have. You will be able. You, I will allow you, it says, to stand and have a place to be and access my presence, says the Lord. You see that holiness is required. And so unholiness brings a problem. To the point that, that the threat here is that if you don't do that, if you don't walk in my ways, then you will lose your office. Zechariah. Zach Poonen once says, sin came through the pride of Lucifer. Pride. Walk in my ways. But salvation comes through the humility of Jesus. The problem with our sin and unfaithfulness is that they become, they can become an insurmountable obstacle toward serving a holy God. This is our problem. And it's a problem even as believers. Have you ever noticed that usually the path that Satan goes about, the conscience of unbelievers is actually comforting them, making them feel that sin is not such a big deal, that you can actually continue, that you can excuse your deception, that uh, it makes you feel good. But have you noticed that once you actually turn around and want to actually obey and then you actually become a child of God. And that Satan now does everything he can to bring accusation after accusation after accusation. He begins to lead us to temptation. And then once we fall and act in sin, he's shocked. And he points at your sin and he says, have you seen what you've done? He makes you feel worthless. He makes you feel depressed. Why? Because he hates God's people. He's a, the accuser of who? Of the brethren. And some of perhaps have noticed and have felt that way. Personally, that internal voice on our shoulders saying, other may be worthy of God, but surely not you. Look at your sin. Stare at it in the face. Why not quit this farce? Why don't you just let go and enjoy sin? See how Satan tries to inflate our sin. And that is a warfare that we often go and we don't realize who is acting behind all that is happening. He reminds you of your sin. He says, you're not worthy to serve me. You should be ashamed of yourself. What should we do? Well, we don't want to hide. We, we're called to admit our sin and say yes. I am a sinner. That's the first step. Augustine says the confession of evil works is the first beginning of good works. Which means, yes, you can admit that Satan, I am even more sinful than you are passing me to be. Yes, indeed, I am. I do not hide it. But at the same time, I recognize that no ceremonial bath can make me clean. That no clothing of religious activities or good works can 
washed it away. But Satan, you know what I do? I hold on to the promise of God that he says in his word that he will defend his own children. That I have been adopted. And I remind of that interposing and mediation of Jesus Christ. Who takes the side of his children. Who is the faithful guardian of our soul. That there is a mediator now between God and myself. And that is Jesus Christ. That Messiah. And so we can rebuke that attack. In the name of Christ. Satan has no power any longer over us. Why? Because the blood of Jesus covers us from head to toe. And we are not anything but Christ. Notice again, the problem is here with worship. There's a big issue here. Notice how badly said Satan hates worship. From the words of our text, we get that he wanted to abolish the priesthood. He wanted to stop the construction of the temple. And he was using all the possible tools available to him to, and he still uses, to divide his church, bring, frustrate the advancement of the kingdom of God. And he hates most of all that God is glorified. If there's one thing that Satan hates is what God is glorified through the salvation of sinners, through the advancement of your kingdom, through worship. Even this morning, he would do everything to distract you this Sunday from focusing upon the glory of God and exaltation of God. Satan hates proper worship. And if he cannot block that, if you cannot take away the seal that you have as a believer in Christ, he will try everything to lead you to sin, to bring separation, to be separation in the church. But friends, the answer remains the same, and that is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who took away our sin, who interposed, who answered, and Satan flees away in a second, because he's far more powerful and sovereign over Satan. But there's also a problem, isn't there, here in excusing sin. Shall we sin more than grace may abound? Never. Friends, our sin cannot be ignored. R.C. Sproul says, if our justification is authentic, it will always and ever yield sanctification. And that is the charge of a Joshua. Walk in my ways and you shall dwell. Faithfulness is required. Grace of God is not a license to sin. As we serve God and we are not aware of the temptation of Satan who is trying to actually lead you into such condition. I cannot take away what God has done in your life, but I will do everything to make you unfaithful. I will do everything so that the church may be worldly and look like the world. I cannot take away the church. I'll make it look like the world. Isn't that the problem of our days? And even on, among, among leaders. How many churches uh, are facing leadership scandals. And people are caught in sin and then remain in servant. They're not removed because they have some sort of special condition. Whereas there's a, a, an element there of requirements qualifications 
and not being into that for your own power and then putting other souls into dangers. Friends, we serve a holy God. And so we want to guard and protect the holiness of God. But uh, at the same time, here we have Joshua. And here we have all of ourselves and all of sin that talk to us. And if, if this was over, then there will be no hope. But the reality is that there is hope. As we declare, oh Lord, who is sufficient for these things? I'm sure Joshua felt as unworthy as ever. As he, as he hears Satan reciting his own sin before God, who is sufficient for this thing? And we are unfit. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? And even this morning, the high calling for me to stand here in this pulpit. That our good works, all of our good works are just a filthy rags before God. I cannot stand on my own righteousness. We cannot in our Christian life. And that's why we need a recommission. We need God's grace to meet us. And that's why we, there is a solution to this problem. Brought by a better high priest. And that's the rest of our text. Particularly, let us start in verse 2. That salvation and God's intervention removes our condemnation. What does the angel do in verse 2? And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. This is a healthy repulsing from Satan. You have no business on making yourself to be a judge. You presume to take a place that is not your own. But notice the angel does it with a healthy fear. Because we are dealing with dark forces here. But he does put Satan in his place. And he shows us that God rejects those accusations of Satan. He takes our side. Out of love. He has chosen Jerusalem. The place of the temple. He wants to show mercy. And our text says. It brings this uh, brand or brand plucked out of the fire. A burning stick. Now literally. Judah, the, the southern kingdom of Israel, had gone through exile. And that exile had burned away a lot of things, a lot of de desolation. But still, there was a remnant. There was a, and I think that's what is in view. However, we have a similar image in Isaiah, where there, so Isaiah 6, verse 6 and 7 says that one of us uh, angels. As Isaiah is receiving the, the vision of the, the holiness of God, the angel comes and says, he, he takes this burning coal to purify. There's a symbol of purification that symbolizes here the taking away of the sin of Joshua as well. Verse 4, he answered and spoke, take away his filthy garments. That is God's solution. First of all, notice that it's not Joshua who is doing this. It's not Joshua who is trying to clean up his own garments. But it is a divine intervention who actually brings forgiveness. God is the agent of forgiveness. And he removes the iniquity. Behold, I remove your iniquity from you. There's a... My favorite scenes on Pilgrim Progress. There's a new movie now has come out as one of my me and my wife's favorites. 
And my favorite scene on that movie is exactly after Pilgrim takes off his burden from his uh, shoulders. And there's these angelic beings that are approaching uh, Pilgrim, Christian by this time, he has a new identity, and they ask Christian, do you understand what just happened? Do you understand what just happened? New garments for a new life. You walk as a prince before God. There's a new creation. And Pilgrim is like, my filthy garments have, have been taken away from me. And in their place, royalty beyond compare. That's our standing before God, if you are in Christ. That not only he has removed your sins away from you as far as the east is from the west. You're completely clean. But he now also gives you what? The most beautiful, shining, rich robes of all the goodness and the righteousness of the works of one another. Jesus Christ. And now Joshua can go on and fulfill his calling. He's pure, ceremonially acceptable before a holy God. Just like the Joshua's work were spotless, so Joshua's works and garments are spotless. He's given a clean turban on his head. High priest had to, to carry this clean white turban. It says, holy to the Lord, consecrated to the Lord. He needed new shining white robes for his priestly office. But these robes were not his. This righteousness was, on, was nothing of his own. All he could contribute was dirty. He needed a whole new outfit. In order to what? To stand. Here I stand. Like, again, this is a tribunal. Fourth time that in our text, stand, stand, takes place through the intercession of this angel of the Lord. As Woodrow Crowe once says, justice is for those who deserve it, but mercy is for those who don't. And so it is here. Salvation in Christ, salvation in the Messiah is what equips us to serve him. Verse 8 now of our text. Here now, O Joshua the high priest, there is another message. He gives a prophecy here and he says, You and your friends, which is all the priests standing in the temple, are a symbol, a wondrous sign of things to come. The fact that God was restoring the priesthood in the temple was to be a pledge of something to come, something better to come. A better high priest. That is, Joshua is only an example or type of something to come. If you go to the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, this becomes very evident in chapter 9. 
The author of Hebrews, which argues the Apostle Paul, speaks of a bread of the presence, the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant, the tablets, the cherubims, the mercy seat, the priests who are... And, and what, is, what, the, what is the point of Hebrews? He's saying, all these elements that are standing right here are only, were only meant to point forward to the coming redemption, to the coming better high priest Jesus Christ. And this is something imminent in our text. He says, Behold, I am about to bring forth my servant. My servant. Now that word servant is not just, okay, another priest into the temple. We know from Old Testament, particularly Isaiah, who the servant is. The servant is to be the prophet. It's a reference to the fact that this person that I'm talking to you about will have that title, he will be a prophet. He will have a prophetic office. He's a is the Messiah. But secondly, he calls him what? Verse eight, once again. Your sign, verse uh, seven and eight. The branch, the branch, the branch. Now, a branch is just a sprout that grows from a tree that has been previously cut. You see it a few times, you might have noticed. But this is more than a reference to vegetables. The genealogical tree of the kingship of Israel had been cut through the exile. The exile had brought to the end of the kingship. And not just for 70 years. All the way to Jesus' coming, people were like, when will the kingship be restored? 400 years. That genealogical tree had been cut. And now the dynasty was broken. But this branch is coming. So he's not only a prophet, a servant. But he's also this mysterious man. He's also a, a, a king. He's a king. A king, a son of David. Sounds familiar? That all this coming shoot from the root or the seed of David that the Old Testament everywhere tells you about is about to come as a king and as a prophet. But lastly, verse 9, behold, I placed a stone, a cornerstone. He's talking to Joshua and Joshua is in the temple. And there is this stone placed in the temple referring to. To his priestly. Not only is a king. Not only is a prophet. But he's also a priest. This Messiah will be a priest. Isaiah 28, 16. Behold I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion. A stone. A tested stone. A precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Then we have a reference to these mysterious seven eyes. I would not want to speculate much. Other than this is the, the providence of God, the all-seeing eye of God, all-encompassing and embracing over all history is at work here. And engrave the inscription of the stone. Boys and girls, when you use a permanent marker, you won't be able to delete it, would you? In fact, even if your mother tries to wash it away from your clothes, it may remain forever, and that, to the point that you have to throw away the t-shirt that you were using. And 
what is in view here is that this prophecy of a coming priest, prophet, and king is not something light. This will be something permanent. He will do something lasting. And what is it that he will do? Look at our text. Verse 9, second part of verse 9. I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. Now remind, Joshua is the high priest. He's going into the Holy of Holies once a year in the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, to actually symbolize the taking away of sin. But he has to do it every year, every, every day, every week. He has to go there to once again forgive, and then there's more sin, and then you have to forgive again. And repeat and repeat. But what this text is saying is the iniquity of the whole land will be removed in one day. At once. Not repeatedly like in the Old Testament sacrifices. And that's why you stand as a symbol, you and the other priest, Joshua. When will this take place? If other than the cross. That the hands and feet of Christ were engraved. And in fact, when we will go to heaven, we will still see those marks as an eternal reminder. You can't erase it. It's an eternal reminder of the price of our salvation. And what is the result? Briefly, verse 10. The result is there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Having been justified freely, we have what? Peace with God reconciliation, fellowship, joy, peace with God. But also look with one another. Everyone who invite under his vine or fig trees. Uh, I know there's not a lot of vines and fig trees here. There's a lot of vines and fig trees in Italy, but it's a symbol of fruitfulness, prosperity, peace. That, that should be observed among each other like the church is the place where you see this image of reconciliation with God and with one another Jack Wellman, Jack Wellman once said no one can have the peace of God until they have they are at peace with God so friends the solution brought by Christ's mediation is that we are forgiven and granted new life Christ solves our need for righteousness our works are just filthy rags before God and they are now substituted with the perfect work of Christ on our behalf. That Good Friday, that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ went to the cross, paid the wrath of God for our sin and He took away all of our sins. That was the best of all days. That not only our sin is atoned, but the righteous deeds of Christ are now counted as ours. Now it's not something as we just read in the Cambridge Confession is not just something that is infused in us. It has nothing to do with us. It is the judge in a tribunal setting that declares me guiltless before the heavenly court. And I put on the helmet of salvation. And I put on Christ as white robes and a pure dress. And I become a new creation. Friends, if you're sitting this morning and you... you what I'm describing, these shining garments, you have not put it on. You know what will happen? We will all go to the wedding feast. Many of us in this room will take our seat. 
And then they will become a servant to you. It says, where is your wedding garment? And you will be speechless. I am pleading you with you this morning. If this is not true of you, if this you're trying to clean up your good works in a permanent marker stain, drop that. And by faith, relying upon what Christ did for you on the cross, that he did indeed take my sin, that his blood indeed covers me. And not only that, but I claim his own righteousness, not because of me, but because of faith in him, in his righteousness. And this can be yours. But do not come to that day without this. Do not face that day still in your sin. Christ can solve your problem with any expectations. The better I priest, the suffering servant, the cornerstone, the solid rock, the root of Jesse, the branch, the man of sorrow, all of this, you want to trust in him. You want to... All this is pointing to Jesus Christ. You can read the Bible, you can, but if you don't see this, that he removes your sin from you by taking it upon the shoulder at the cross. That he, no, it's not enough that yes he forgives me. But I still don't have righteousness to enter into heaven. I don't have any. And therefore I need his righteousness. That has been imputed. By the prophet, priest and king Jesus Christ. Who removes my fear of condemnation. From Satan. He gives me freedom. He gives me peace with God. And that peace is visible. As I said. Should be visible among Christians. And even in the way that we. Re behave with unbelievers. That we don't want to retaliate. That we love our enemy. Why is that? Because of the gospel. Because. I have been forgiven. And it should be seen. It should be seen. As we extend. God's grace. All of us, friends, are in our sin and stand before a holy God. That is the picture of redemption that Zechariah gives us. That we are filthy and yet by his grace gives us a brand new start. Only through the royal branch, through the priestly stone, through the victory that Christ has over our accuser, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ annihilates Satan. He has no power over you. He vanish before the blood of Christ. Who takes away our sin in a single day. Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, can solve all the problem. Any sinful problem, any, any problem within the church, any unworthiness that you might feel this morning. Come and the same, the same divine pronunciation can be yours. Trust in the branch. Trust in the rock of ages. Yes, I'm a great sinner, but I have a greater Savior. Yes, I have a dirty conscience, but I can purify it by your blood. And from filthy clothes, I have white, pure garments. From shame, I go to glory. From heaven, lost to paradise, regained. And we lost the wonder of our salvation, I wonder, as believers. To think of what is ours in Christ Jesus. May this morning we meditate upon it. And remember that this salvation opened a new lifestyle. 
walk in my ways, characterized by holiness, as we serve the Lord, especially as we lead all, however, only through the base of the marvelous work of Christ. And so we declare amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this verdict. We thank you because the, the court case is closed. The hammer has been slammed on the table of the heavenly judge. You have declared your people free. You have forgiven the unforgivable. You have removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Lord, we stand aware of our sin and unworthiness. And we marvel at your grace and mercy. We pray especially this morning, Lord, if there is some among us who are still void of an experiential understanding of all these things. Not just in the head, not just a Bible knowledge, but where all the dots fit together and comes out the shade of a cross. That, Lord, you will bring them from the hand of himself. Nothing in my hand I bring, O oh Lord, only through the cross I cling. May be true for everyone in this room, young and old. O oh Lord, grant them this salvation. And for all of us in the Christian walk, that we will walk in holiness. Aware of your holiness, the true your forgiving power through the righteousness of Christ, which our service does not diminish and it doesn't add to anything, that we will indeed live in thankfulness and obedience to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.